My name is Darren Briskman. I am from Amazon Web Services. I, as I like to tell people, have the easiest job at AWS because I am a technical evangelist for databases. So my job is to get nerds excited about data. This is not hard. So if you're a nerd who thinks data is exciting, this is the right room for you. Because today we're going to talk about IFT. The two of the T's are silent. You have to decide which two of the T's are silent. But IFT, which comes from uh, if this, then that, uh, is an organization that does these amazing mashups of, of apps. And you're going to hear today from Nicholas Silva, uh, who will give in detail about both what IFT does and how it works with ElastiCache and Redis. So I think of Nicholas as one of the code ninjas that these little guys are supposed to represent. Because, you know, if you've ever watched a movie, you know that one ninja is an undefeatable ultimate force. And two or more ninjas always lose. So that's why I have Nicholas here alone, because if you're a ninja, you have to avoid your coworkers. But he's going to tell us a lot about how IFT works and how it uses ElastiCache. But first, I get to tell you a little bit about ElastiCache. So um, how many people here have used ElastiCache? And you're all on one side of the room. That's an interesting spread. Okay. Well, ElastiCache, uh, for those not familiar with it, even those who are, is a service that's been part of AWS for a very long time. And it started with Memcached. And Memcached is a terrific caching technology. It's still great, but it hasn't really changed much in many years because it's one of those kind of traditional Unix tools that does one thing, which is caching, and does it really well. In 2009, um, a, a team in Italy created a product called Redis that was designed to address some of the deficiencies of Memcache and add a lot more functionality. And we're seeing Memcache as by far the most common and popular engine within Amazon ElastiCache. And it does a lot more than caching. We'll talk about that a bit. But I want to say a few words about what makes Redis and Amazon ElastiCache different than getting open source Redis off of GitHub and running it on EC2, which you can do, and that's great. But we do a few things that are different. So like any other Redis, it's an in-memory key value store that's very high performance. Okay, what does that actually mean? The average get or set time for a 4K object, which is our, roughly our average object size, is about 400 to 450 microseconds, right? Less than half a millisecond. Now, very rarely do people really care about the difference between half a millisecond and one millisecond. What makes that speed interesting is in how much throughput you can get. With ElastiCache today, we have customers that have achieved over 4.5 million writes per second and 20 million reads per second on ElastiCache cluster. So we're able to scale to very high throughput. And we can do that because it's in memory. Now, the downside of being in memory is it's all in memory. So your storage is limited to the memory. ElastiCache today, that means you can have up to 3.5 terabytes in our largest cluster. But it runs anywhere from a T2 micro that will hold about 500 megabytes up to a, a cluster with 15 shards of R3, of R3 8 extra large. That's how you get to 3.5 terabytes. It gives us a wide range. And of course, it's a fully managed environment with no administration. Now, those of you who have ever run your own Redis environment, it's not hard to install Redis. It's not hard to run Redis. What's hard to do is run high availability successfully. And why is that? It's like any other data high-av environment. There's a 1,000 little details. And if you get 999 right, that's not good enough. 
because it won't work when you have the emergency. When you use managed environment, we take care of that. And, by the way, it's less expensive to do high availability in ElastiCache than open source because there's no cross-AZ data transfer costs. So when I put my replicas in different availability zones with ElastiCache, it costs you nothing to copy that data. If you're using open source, you're going to have to pay the data transfer. It's not a huge cost difference, but it can be significant. We've also done some work to harden this under the hood. So our interface is 100% open standards, open source Redis. Any Redis code you have will work with ElastiCache, will work with open source, will work with other organizations like, say, Redis Labs and their enterprise Redis. These will all work just fine. But underneath, we've done some things to make it work better because we can cheat. What do I mean by we can cheat? Open source Redis has to run on every platform ever made, right? It has to run on, 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 on laptops and different servers and different architectures. We only have to make it run on EC2. We know how EC2 works, so we can optimize it for EC2. So if you're familiar with Aurora and our RDS, where we've optimized the engine, but it's a MySQL or now a Postgres interface, same thing here. We've optimized the engine. So, for example, we can do failover faster and smoother because we do direct memory transfer instead of having to go through disk storage when we do replicas. Similarly, we can do snapshots even though you're using almost all the memory because we can take advantage of the, of the EC2 capabilities. So there's a lot of things we're able to do that you just can't quite do in open source. So to drill into that a bit, if you look at the things in Redis, you know, it is ridiculously fast. And that's actually in the documentation that it says it's ridiculously fast. So I can put that up on the board. As we said, less than 500 microseconds for most operations. Now, that's assuming you're moving a, a kilobyte to four kilobytes. Obviously, if I'm moving 500 megabytes, it will take more than a millisecond. But we, it's still the fastest data technology out there. Uh, we do have the persistence capability. That's so that I can take backups and other pieces. This is one of the things that Memcached D just doesn't do, but I can do in Redis, as well as have high availability through replication. So we support up to five replicas. You really don't need more than one or two for availability. The reason to have more than two is if you have a really high read rate. You need to get millions of reads. We can do that. And there's all sorts of cool stuff like atomic operations and about 200 commands and Lua scripting. But I want to spend just a moment on the data structures, because a lot of what IF does really depends on using the data structures in Redis. So pardon me if I get a bit nerdy here. But I love this stuff, because you know this is the code. So in Redis, everything's a string. It's a key value store. So the basic Redis structure is a key that's a string and a value that's a string. Each of those can be up to 512 megabytes. Yes, you can have a 500 megabyte key. Don't do that because it makes it a little hard to use the key. But people can commonly do keys that are a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand characters, because I've seen people do things like you know, put an sh1 hash in as the key. It's not human readable, but it's great for code connection and other things. Or do compound keys, like user colon something, session colon something, and be able to do these complexities. And then what's cool about Redis, it's not typed. Everything's a string, but Redis is smart enough to figure that out. So Redis can look at a, at, a, at a string that's 7639 and go, oh, I know that's an integer. And then we'll increment it or decrement it or do other math operations. And it's a binary safe string. So that string could be an image. It could be a, a, a JPEG file or a PNG file or something else uh, or a movie file. The only limit is 512 gig, but it, sorry, 512 meg. But if you have something in the gigabyte phase, you can chop it into pieces. And a lot of people do that. Another data type is a hash. 
So a hash, instead of key and value, you have a key and a hash table, and the hash table consists of a bunch of keys and values. So I can keep a lot of nested information that way. Or we can put those strings together in a list and then pop and push from each end of the list or put it together in a set. So the difference between a set and a list is the set is unique. So you might notice on here the list, I have A, C, B, C. So C can go in there twice. In a set, I can only have each of them once. Sets or lists are ordered in the way you put them in. A sorted set is really useful, and if we'll talk a bit about how they're using that, because a sorted set, each of the items in the set has a score. <coughs> and it's always kept in the order of the score. So let's say you're running a, a game and you want to know who are the top 10 players. Well, if I'm keeping player names and scores, it's 100 microseconds to pull out those top 10 players. Or if you're a lousy player like me, but I want to know, so I'm probably you know, player 1,370 in the ranking, but I want to know who's 1,369 so I can knock them off. Also, one call to find my rank and another call to find, say, the five ahead of me and the five behind me. So really easy. It's more than gaming. E-commerce will use this. What are my top-selling products today? Combine it with a hash. What are the top-selling products with each of these products? And then, have, and then and link those up. So I can use these data types in a lot of interesting ways. Geospatial index is a special sorted set, but you have two scores, a latitude and a long, longitude. And then Redis has all these cool commands to what's the distance between these two points, or here's a point in a radius, this is this other point inside that radius. Lots of uses to be able to, in microseconds, figure out geographic information. And the last one's kind of cool. I don't, Nick, Nick, do you all use hyperlog log? Okay, this is a weird one. Hyperlog log is a mathematical trick that if you have a very large set to uh, guess the cardinality. So in other words, let's say I've got a, uh, a table with a billion items in it. We get that sometimes. If you want to count the number of items doing a scan or even doing a select count splat, it's computationally expensive. And a table that big, it probably changes by the time it's done counting. A hyperlog log is doing a mathematical trick by taking uh, a hash of the table definition and looking for the number of, of matching digits to guess the size of the number of items in that table or that set. It doesn't have to be a table. And it's always within 3%, usually within a half a percent. But the hyperlog never takes up more than 12K. So if I have something that has millions or hundreds of millions or billions and I want to know the count, I can figure that out within 3% in a 100 microsecond operation. This is really useful. There's certain e-commerce sites that you may have heard of that uh, use this uh, at the top of their page to tell you how many items are in the catalog. Now, Redis was originally written by uh, a team in Italy, as I mentioned. The uh, head of that team, who still contributes to the project, uh, Salvatore Sanfilippo, who online goes by anti-res, has the great uh, catchphrase that learning Redis is the best half hour you can spend in your career as a developer. I guess that's a bit of an exaggeration. But I'll tell you, if you haven't done stuff with Redis, if you can code in any language and you've used any database, you can pick this up in a day. And it's great stuff to use. So having given that little overview, I'd like to uh, mention just a few examples, and then we'll bring Nicholas up to talk about reality. So just show a few ways that these are used. So there up there is an example of one of those compound keys, page colon index.html. You don't have to use a colon. That's just a common convention. But you might notice what we're storing there, in this case, is a web page. So this is commonly used done for session caching or ways to keep web or other information that I want to be able to pull back quickly. There's another uh, example there of, uh, in this case, an integer. So it's smart enough to say, hey, it's stored as a string, but I know that's an integer. Figure it out on its own. 
One of the other things you can do with strings that's unique to Redis is not pull back the whole string, but only get or set just a number of bits, an arbitrary set of bits. So if I'm using something like protocol buff, protobuf or protocol buffers or minify, and I don't want to pull out and deserialize the whole thing, if I know the structure, I know I want to get bits 107 through 119, you can do that. Can't do that with other databases. It's a really cool feature to be able to deal with compressed data. There's a set of who logged in today. So say user three logs in again, it's a set, they're unique, so it doesn't come in again. On the other hand, below it is the post IDs. These are the IDs of people who have done posting. So for that one, that's a list, because if somebody posts three times, I want them to show up three times. There's ways to keep the data. Uh, there below is an example of a hash. So I'm keeping session. In this case, my hash, my key values are time and a time value and a username and a username value. Time values by Redis are normally done uh, in Unix epic time. But any, you know, Python, Java, Ruby, Node, C, whatever that you're going to use have the tools you need to convert between Unix epic time and standard timestamps. And then uh, finally, there's an example there of a scored set, sorted set, where you might notice that there is a score next to Joe and Bert and Fred and Chris inside the users and scores uh, set, and it's always kept in that order. So if I put in a new entry, uh, it wouldn't go at the end. It would go where the score fit in. So it's always kept in order. That's how I can pull it back so quickly. All right. So I've got these tools. How do you use them to do something really cool? Nicholas, come on up here. Thank you, Darren. Uh, that was that was really interesting. I actually, my brain was going. I feel like uh, there are some things that we could actually improve about our systems uh, with with some of those things. So, if you're not familiar with IFT, our uh, tagline right now is "One Connection, Countless Possibilities." We allow users and developers to create what we call applets. Uh, Oracle has given up the word. Uh, Firefox is deprecating Java applets in the browser, I think, in February, so we, um, we snatched it. Here are some examples. Um, you can connect your hue lights to your location, uh, your Facebook photos to um, an iOS photo album or a box account, and pretty much anything that you can think of. Developers can also write even more complex functionality uh, and we just released what we're calling a maker tier where you can build access to this functionality yourself. Uh, I've prepared a little bit of a demo. We're going to try and see if it works because um, conference Wi-Fi. This has been pretty great, but you never know. Every attendee got an Echo Dot, and Alexa, uh, the, uh, Alexa, there she, the Alexa service is one of our partners, and... Um, we enable a lot of skills that are not actually native. So just by connecting to IFT, you can enable pretty much anything that you can dream of with our 360 partners. So, okay, let's try it. Alexa, find my phone. Oh, uh. Okay. Alexa, stop. Alexa. Trigger, find my phone. That to it. it was the word trigger that I had forgotten. And so that's not a native skill that Alexa has. And it's actually calling my phone and will leave a voicemail that I can customize. So you can actually, if, if you've lost your phone somewhere else, 
you can actually have the voicemail say something to the person that theoretically finds your phone. Really neat. We have over 43 million applets that have been created, uh, over 9 million users on our platform, 360 services, as I mentioned. We run applets over a billion times per month. And that doesn't even include times that applets didn't have fresh data or errored out because of authentication information or something like that. So those are just active applet runs. And we have over 80 million service activations, essentially OAuth login information for uh, people's um, connected services. Or if it doesn't require um, authentication, just uh, an unauthenticated connection. We run in one region, four availability zones, over 300 spot instances uh, that run all the recipes. I talked about that yesterday uh, in a different session. Over 60 Elastic Hash nodes and one DevOps engineer. Hi, guys. Um, we're going to talk about two different ways in which you, we use Elastic Hash today. One I'm calling applet optimization. You saw the, um, the slide. Uh, I leaked it a little bit. Uh, and then also the way that we store our applet logs. So digging right into it, applet optimization. Applets consist primarily of triggers and actions. And if you're familiar with ift from the last six years, it was one trigger to one action. If this, then that. And now we're starting to get more complex triggers and actions. But um, for now, just thinking about it simply that way, instant triggers are when one of our partners calls into us we, uh, but not every partner supports that. So we strive for as little delay as possible, but you have to resort to polling in a lot of cases. Even with instant triggers, you have to resort to polling in case you missed one of the notifications from the partner. You still want to be able to make sure that you can check that new data um, was there. Uh, going back to this, this is actually one of my applets that I have. Um, activated on my account, I get little updates from the Reddit Lego group in, in Slack pretty much uh, uh, all day, a couple times a day. Um, really fun one. So we started building a system that we could predict when someone's applet would run. We needed to uh, be able to store that data somewhere. We wanted that storage system to be fast, hearkening back to Darren's talk. Um, section, we, but we needed some native complex data types like sets and bitmaps, and that'll become clear why in uh, a few minutes. We also needed to be able to do atomic tra uh, transactions across multiple keys. Also, I'll explain why um, uh, shortly. And really, Redis was the, um, the, the clear choice for that. We do not like to run things ourselves, so managed Elasticash was, uh, was, was perfect. We, the way that we do this is anytime an applet runs, we publish that data to Kinesis. And we wrote a Kinesis consumer, uh, I think just based off of one of the, the Kinesis consumer templates, that writes to our, our predictor uh, Elasticash data store and writes to a bitmap. We have a, a bit for every minute of the day on a key that is the user's ID, or sorry, the applet ID and the day. So it's a very, very concise data type. This particular consumer only cares about when it ran. If it ran at, um, 
at 1 a.m., we would write set bit key 61. If it ran at 1.01 a.m., it would be key 61. Um, we, uh, sorry, having a, uh, so it's very concise structure. Um, we can fit all this data into a single node and then use replication to um, keep it um, highly available. And then our data science team wrote a uh, machine learning algorithm to actually use all of that data and return a predicted schedule for when an applet ran. So here's kind of an example. This is what, what we used to be doing. The polling frequency is when we would, um, we would just check essentially as often as we could for a particular applet asking, do you have new data? Do you have new data? Do you have new data? But if you look at the actual event schedule over, uh, like let's say this is a 24 hour period, that person's applet only ran three times during that period. So we don't actually need to be checking for the rest of the time. Um, and we can use that information over like a, a historical period, like seven days, to be able to predict when to check. So then we can construct a predicted applet schedule, like the, the um, bottom example, that sure, we check a couple extra times when there, we, there wouldn't be, we don't think that there would be an applet run at that time, but around the times that we're pretty sure that there's going to be an applet run, we check even more frequently. But, um, and this example doesn't really highlight this very well because it's, it's like um, seven little marks on a, on a line. Over the course of seven days, we've at, we, by doing this, we were actually able to reduce our total number of, of trigger checks very significantly. So the prediction algorithm uses historical data to return a daily schedule for each applet. That schedule is then transformed into a key for each minute of the day with a list of the applets to check. So what I mean by that is we actually have the uh, a crawler that crawls through our entire list of applets, all however million of them that, that, that there were, fetches the schedule, and then re-enqueues or uh, rewrites that to a different Redis data structure, uh, just a set, and then... We, we keep like a master schedule for the entire day with one set for each minute with a list of the applet IDs that we think that we need to check on that minute. Then our applet, applet check in cure, a lot of uh, jargon, just gets to read the entire schedule for that minute and enqueue those applets to be checked and it um, goes on to the next one at the next minute. So we don't have to go through our, our database all the time, checking to see which applets need to be run. Um, it's really simplified ever, uh, our, um, our system. Some of this I already talked about, uh, but the service crawls all applets and writes essentially a pivot table back to Redis. And it does it with a pretty complex Lua script, or actually not a complex Lua script, a pretty simple Lua script that just checks if it's in the set for, um, for convenience and we also do a little bit of of uh, logging around that, and then either adds it or removes it based on whether we think uh, it should run at that time. And this is kind of just always crawling through our database and updating the schedule going forward. The And as I said, instead of having a bitmap of um, uh, the day with 1440 bits, we have 1440 sets for the day, um, one with each minute. So over this, we've seen a significant re reduction in our average polling frequency, 
and a significant reduction in the average delay between when uh, a data occurs on a new service or an event occurs on a new service or on one of the services and when that applet runs. We also really smoothed out our wor workload. We had kind of workload that was really spiky. In the morning, there would be a lot of applet runs, and we um, would kind of like get backed up a little bit. Now it's just very, very smooth and has really let us optimize our, our uh, workers handling the workload. And realistically, Elastic Hash turned out to be a flexible data storage um, service that exceeded our requirements. So it's way faster than we even needed it to be and more scalable in that we're, at this point, only using a fraction of our, um, uh, of our node, and we can, um, if we need to, or when we need to, we can scale out to more or go across region. It's very, um, very easy to do that. So the next thing that I mentioned that we'd be talking about is our applet log system. Every applet transaction is logged, whether or not um, it actually fired, if there was an error, um, if the applet was deactivated, when it was created. We log a little bit of data so that we can then fire notifications and give, um, give the user some context about what actually happened, but it, like, we don't go too deep into the logging. It's, it's really just kind of a, uh, a snapshot. All those applet logs are accessible by users, um, so we need those to be indexed by user, applet, and service. So, when coming up with the design for the system, we had some pretty strict requirements. We needed it to be affordable and scalable horizontally, so um, we, we didn't want to run into any sort of scaling issues. We actually had a previous system that we did run into scaling issues, so couldn't do that. Uh, we wanted a good user experience when displaying those logs, and what I mean is that we wanted them to show up quickly, and if someone's navigating around their account, that it, they wouldn't see long page load times or anything like that. We wanted the system to be resilient to adding additional indexes in the future. So let's say we introduce some new kind of like core concept. We want to be able to add that index to logs going forward as well as logs going backward. I don't say future proof because we know that it's going to take some work to do something like that. So I came up with future resilient um, going forward. It's really easy to add an index in the system that we developed, but we know that it would take work to kind of like go back and, um, and re-index. So again, theme, Kinesis, we publish all of the data to Kinesis. And since we're doing just one publish, the consumer for applet optimization consumes the same data stream as the, the consumer for applet logs. That Kinesis consumer simultaneously writes chunks of data to S3. So it'll actually batch up um, a customizable batch size of log items and then write it as a chunk so that we're not doing like tens of millions of puts to S3, which would be um, uh, pretty cost ineffective. And then also writes indexes to ElastiCache. So as I said, we can add indexes going forward and then it will just continue to work and then we can re-index going backward with an Elastic MapReduce job or something that we, we haven't written yet. Um, so when we want to read those logs, all we have to do is look up the index in the Elastic Hash, say on the applet ID, fetch the chunk locations on S3, and then read data from S3 in, and then create kind of like the last 10 entries or the last 100 entries or however that, uh, however far you want to go back. The, um, it 
reading from S3 can be slow sometimes, even if you're reading entries in parallel across different chunks. We're also parsing, um, parsing like, uh, however big the chunk size is, like, it can get pretty, um, pretty time consuming. And when I say time consuming, I mean, I'm talking about like, milliseconds, it's it's still really fast, but if someone is navigating around the site, we don't want them waiting hundreds of milliseconds to read for our service to read a whole bunch of stuff off of different locations on S3. So we actually cache recent reads into back into ElastiCache that just as kind of like a simple key value store. Uh, the indexes keep at keep most the most recent X items. So if we're looking at uh, at our indexes being a hundred items, that X would be 100. And when an index gets too large, we actually truncate the index with Lua and then store that index back to S3 so that at any point, if someone is kind of like navigating really far back in their um, in their applet logs, we can fetch the chunks for the index, load the index again into kind of like a temporary um, key, and then restart the whole process over again. So uh, it seems kind of kind of clunky, but it really is just the same process for fetching logs, and we just reuse that for fetching archived in indices. So to recap, S3 is our cold storage for long-term archiving. Elasticache Redis has the hot data and hot indexes. We It's fast loading for users while still being affordable and scalable, and the costs scale with a number of users instead of growing out of hand, and that was the key thing, is that we know uh, uh, and it actually scales with a number of applets, but we we know that if we're dumping stuff to S3, that we um, it can just grow and grow and grow and grow, and then you're spending tens of thousands of dollars in S3. With this system, um, using Elasticache as the index and being able to limit it to the number of users because um, things are indexed by user that a certain Elasticache node will be able to handle a certain number of users, and rather than um, like paying a bunch of throughput prices on Dynamo, this allows us to scale and keep just the kind of like hot data in Elasticache, and we can estimate exactly how many um, kilobytes of data one particular applet index will use, and, and so on. So. We can um, use Elastic MapReduce or something like that to re-index an entire account if someone wants all of their data or they're they're concerned about a particular um, a particular applet running, and then we can add indexes without hassle uh, going forward and with a little bit of hassle going backwards. It really has uh, has kind of like saved us a lot in terms of what we were doing before, what we know that we're going to have to do going forward, and. Um, yeah, that's that's uh, pretty much it for our applet logs. So I'm going to hand it back to Darren, and we're going to wrap up. We are. Well, first is the thing that we need to ask you, which is very important at every session at reInvent. So please fill out your evaluations. Because if you haven't figured this out yet, after you've filled out evaluations, it unlocks the swag. So you can go by the swag counter and get stuff. Other than that, does anyone have any questions? If so, please go to one of our microphones and uh, let us know what you'd like to know.